Hi, I'm Pastor Jeremy, and welcome to the preaching ministry of Nest Baptist, where we seek to equip people to love God and love others. So whether you are a longtime follower of Jesus, or you're exploring what faith in Him might look like, we're glad you're here. It is our prayer that through our sermons, you might better understand who God is, what He has done for you, and what that means for your life. May all of this lead to the worship of God and be for His glory. Good morning. I'll be reading in the ESV from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, I just want to start by apologizing. I took too many pills this morning. I don't want you to have to worry. Your pastor is not addicted to pills. I just took a couple of painkillers, so... That's where I'm at. Don't want you to have to worry about that. I shouldn't have said it, though, so I do apologize. I stumble on my words off. I'm always looking for something to blame it on. Well, this is a, a wonderful passage that we have before us here today. And uh, as you said, it is one beautiful long sentence and one that we're taking a couple of weeks to go through. And when it comes to your life, you know, I think everybody, I would say, it's pretty safe to say, has a, has a plan. I would say most people do anyway. Uh, they say that if you don't have a plan, if you don't have a target, you're never going to go anywhere. How do you know where to go if you're not aiming at anything? You have to plan and you have to strategize. You know, would you want your life to be something that just happens to you? Something that you just embark on and just see where the chips may fail or fall? There we go again. It's one thing to do that, uh, you know, if you're on vacation and you say, oh, I'm just going to go drive and see where the road might take me. But it's another thing to do it with your life in general. You know, everybody has dreams, everyone has goals, everyone eventually wants to get somewhere. Your goal may be just not to live in your parents' basement for the rest of your life, but at least that's a plan. You may want to be a little bit more detailed than that, but it has to start somewhere. Why are humans the only creatures that plan, I often wonder? Animals don't make plans as far as we can tell. My dog, she has no plan for her future other than to, I guess, eat as much as she possibly can. But there's no plan beyond that. They don't see need to plan. They just operate on their instincts. Why do we plan? Where does our need to plan and purpose of our life come from? Why do we want to know? You Imagine God creating the heavens and the earth, creating mankind and not having a plan. Imagine the events of the world just happening and God being surprised by them. 
What kind of a God would that be? And it brings up the question, does, does God just have foreknowledge or is he sovereign over all? You know, imagine God being like, Adam and Eve sinned, now what? Or Cain killed Abel, and now what? My people didn't follow the law perfectly, now what? Well, no, God has a plan, and that plan was a part of history, and it's part of the present, and it's part of the future as well. And that actually gives us a lot of hope, because we're safe in God's plan. It's a beautiful thing, and we see that so clearly in this passage that we have before us today. But what does that mean for us as God's special creation? Does it matter what we do? Does it somehow motivate what we do? And I think so. In order to see that, I want to look at this fact that, number one, God does have a plan, and we see that in verse 9. Number two, that God invites us into this plan. We see that in verse 11. And then thirdly, that the plan, it points us to a person, which we find in verse 10. So first of all, God has a plan. Verse 9 says this, He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ. You know, Christians would agree with each other that in some form or another that God does have a plan and a purpose for this world which He has created. Uh, not everyone agrees with what it is or how it's going to come about, but we would say that there is definitely a purpose. But does the modern or the rest of the secular world think so also? Does history have meaning? Or is the only goal to try and leave the world a better place than when you came into it? Because if that's the case, it would mean that the purpose is always changing, and it always will change. The idea that there is a grand meta-narrative at play is inconceivable to a great many people. Because if Darwinian evolution is believed, then we would have to say that we are just here by accident, and that one day everything will burn out. There is no grand purpose that's guiding any of this. But you know, deep down, there's very few people that actually believe that. And we've come up with terms to describe it. We use words like serendipitous, when something seemingly just happens by coincidence, and then it has a good turnout. I recently met someone who's going through a difficult time. And this person's not a Christian. But they asked if I would pray for their situation. Well, of course I said, yeah. The next time I saw them, they were so happy to report that our prayers had been answered and that there had been some positive momentum in their situation. And they expressed to me how our meeting each other must have been more than just a coincidence. They, they weren't exactly sure how to explain it, but of course I agreed. There's more going on than just mere chance. And most people in that situation would have similar thoughts. This could have been... This could not have just been dumb luck. And in verse 9, we are told that God has a purpose and that He has set it forward in Christ. So there is a plan. Well, then what do, what do we do about that plan? We find out that God invites us into it. That's our second point this morning from verse 11 that says, In Him we have obtained an inheritance. <clears throat> having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. 
There is a purpose that He works all things according to the counsel of His will. So verse 9 tells us that things are going towards God's purpose. And we know that God is immutable and He is unchanging. So this is a purpose which cannot be defeated. That means there's a purpose and it's a purpose that can never be defeated. But this does bring up the question then of, am I free? Or is there a predetermined outcome then to everything that happens? And if so, then why try? You know, the Bible answer to the, both of those scenarios, am I free or is there a grand purpose that's at play, is yes. But humanists have often thought they've given us one of two scenarios to this answer. One is that freedom of will is an illusion. You may think that you are free, but in reality there is something that is guiding you and determining your direction. It was physicists that actually came up with this idea a long time ago. It goes all the way back to the 400s with the famous Sophocles play, Oedipus Rex. And in this play, a young man, Oedipus, was given a prophecy that he would kill his father and marry his mother. And as much as he tried to make decisions that would drive him against that outcome, I see a few of you thinking, that's a weird play that I never want to see. <laughs> as much as he tried everything he could to take him away from that prophecy in that direction, he found himself with each decision that he made being drawn closer and closer to it against everything that he was trying to do until it finally happens. Well, if you've studied psychology, you will know that Sigmund Freud, of course, picked up on this idea many years later and developed it even further. And it still exists in one form or another as a way of explaining what's happening in the world and what our purpose is or should be. There's something guiding us. This is sometimes called determinism. The outcomes are determined by a force that we cannot understand. Well, there's another secular answer to this question, and that it is purely free will. The idea that you just try to make every decision a good one, and hopefully things will turn out right in the end. At the end of one of the Back to the Future movies, Doc Brown, he looks at McFly and he says to him, your future hasn't been written yet. No one's has. Your future is whatever you make of it, so make it a good one. That sort of in I think encapsulates the idea. But we know that it's not always so simple. We know that there are certain limitations and constraints that we find ourselves in, and we want to, as humans, we want to move past those limitations that things like our genetics have upon us, or that our families have on us, or that our culture has on us, and to say, those things will not determine who I become. Because there are certainly forces at play that do determine our decisions and our directions to one extent or another. You may have come from a family who, you know, they've farmed for generations and there's some certain amount of pressure that you will follow in the footsteps, but you want to buck the trend and say, I don't want to do that, I want to go to university and study finance instead. You know, none of us want to be bound by our past or bound by our genetics or any other source. We desire a purely free will that has no determin determination or determinism, I should say, attached to it at all. But does such a thing really exist? So which one is it? Determinism or is it free will? Which one is the right way of looking at the world and our futures? And in the Bible, it comes to us with the answer, yes. 
Because if your future is completely governed by your choices now, you are being naive. You cannot control it. You know, I can't tell you how many retired people I have talked to that have planned their entire lives for retirement to look a certain way, and it just didn't pan out. They were determined to have it look one way. It might have been because of financial changes, maybe the stock market, economy crashes. It could have been because of illness or even death. You know, we just can't know these things for sure. We don't have control over them. And the Bible is clear in explaining that, yes, you are responsible to make good decisions, and also God is in control. These two things look like they're competing with one another. You are responsible to make good decisions, and yes, God is also in control. How do those two things work together? I think we even see this in the book of Ephesians. You know, if you read through the book as a whole, chapter 1 to 3, it talks a lot about God predestining from before the world began and that He has chosen His people to become holy and blameless. But then as you read on in chapter 4 and 6, we're told to strive and to work with every fiber of our being to become like Christ. Well, earlier on it said that we were determined before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. But now it's saying we have to strive and work hard towards that. Plan well. Make good choices. Paul uses actually the analogy of walking a lot in these chapters. He says, walk in a manner that is worthy of your calling in chapter 4. That means that you have been called, but that you also have to strive. Walk in a manner that is worthy of your calling. He says in chapter 4, don't walk as the non-Christians do. In chapter 5, he says, walk in love as Christ has loved us, and so on and so on. You see, it's not one or the other, it's both. You were called, so walk in that calling. Do everything you can to live like Christ. Well, then the question comes up, well, if that's true, then aren't we just sort of like robots? Well, no, it's complex, and it's all through Scripture. God has a plan and we are still responsible. God has a plan, and all of us have responsibility. You know, it's like in the Old Testament. God often uses a surrounding nation to punish the people of Israel, and then He punishes that nation that punished Israel. We're thinking, well, why? That doesn't seem to make sense. It doesn't work in our minds. We're like, how does that work out? Or like Pharaoh in Exodus. They wouldn't let the Hebrews go. You remember they come before him? There's all the plagues. Sometimes we are told that it was God who hardened Pharaoh's heart. And sometimes it says that it was Pharaoh that hardened his heart. So which one was it? Again, the answer is yes. These things are both at play here. In Acts chapter 2, this is Peter's first sermon. It says that God ordained Jesus' death. So Jesus' death was ordained, and we know from before the foundation of the world, but those who did it, they still need to repent. There still is responsibility. So we are free to make decisions, but God takes those decisions and He works them into a perfect plan. Everything that happens works into that plan. I don't know if you remember in Acts chapter 27, we see this again. Paul, he's sailing to Rome, and they get into a giant storm at sea. 
And the sailors who are on the ship, they're panicking. They're thinking that they are going to die. But an angel of God appears to Paul and he tells them, no one is going to die. Be assured, no one will die. Not Paul, nor any other sailor on that ship. But then the sailors, they start to panic again. And they want to escape to shore. Like Paul tells them this, don't worry. But they, they still panic and they want to escape to shore. But Paul says, the only way you can stay alive is if you stay on the ship. The only way you will stay alive is if you stay on the ship. If they get off, they will die. But God said, no one will die. You know, what does this mean? It means, I would say, that you are 100% responsible and God is 100% in charge. We hold both of these truths. On one hand, you are responsible. God holds all of us responsible. That means you can mess things up, so you should work hard with every fiber of your being to do the right thing. But ultimately, God is in charge and there is a plan. This is why those who crucified Jesus still needed to repent. It was obviously God's plan from the beginning that that would happen, but they are still responsible for their actions, as are we. It is a mystery, in a sense, how these two things come to be a reality. They are not contradictory, as the great preacher Charles Spurgeon argues. He said something like this to help us sort of wrap our minds around it. He said, just as the rails of a train track, which run parallel to each other, appear to merge in the distance. If you look far into the distance, they come together. So too, the doctrines of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, which seem separate from each other in this life, will merge together in eternity. Our task is not to force their merging in this life, but to keep them in balance and to live accordingly. And I think that's what Paul is telling us as well here in the book of Ephesians from verses 1 to 3 and verses 4 to 6. We just look at the life of Joseph. He starts off as the favorite. He's the spoiled child. He's the one that no one likes. His family does not like him, of course, his brothers. But eventually he becomes the prince of Egypt. He takes this incredible turn. His life is a train wreck for 30 years, but then we see a purpose in it all. Joseph, Joseph's life was refined, and his family and his people were saved. But it took a long time. It didn't just happen right away. Couldn't God have just done it? Couldn't God just made it happen, just snapped his fingers? Well, no. There was a plan in all of this. There was a plan, and in Genesis 50, it says that all that he went through was for a grand purpose. What his brothers meant for evil, God meant it for good. He took their decisions that they made, the choices that they made, and God used those things to accomplish His purpose. God was working His purpose through all of the pain and all of those trials, through people, through circumstances, through choices that people were making, all coming together just as God had designed it. You see, no one really learns by just being told. We usually have to go through circumstances in order to have change really happen and sink down in our lives. And God, we can see this in the life of Joseph, he allowed just the right amount of circumstances, terribly hard circumstances, to happen in his life so that he would change and that God's plan would come to fruition. Because God has a plan and a purpose. 
And this means that through the trials and the tribulations that you go through, they're not wasted. That brings us hope. Every trial, every tribulation that you go through, just as Joseph did, is all working together towards something. None of it is wasted. They are all working together in ways that we are rarely able to understand or comprehend. This is really good news. You see, Joseph surely didn't get it when he was in the pit, or when he was in prison, or when he was in fear of his life. He may not have seen it. He didn't know what that purpose was, but God carried him through, and He will carry you through whatever circumstance you are facing. We are faithful to Him. Because all of this points us to a person. A person that we have been singing about this morning and talking of already. In verse 10 it says, As a plan for the fullness of time, the fullness of time, to unite all things together in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. There is a plan and it points to someone who is bringing all of these things together in heaven and on earth. God's plan is to bring all things in heaven and earth together through Jesus Christ. This plan or purpose has a, a heavenly component, and it has an earthly component, as the verse says. In the heavens, there are some things that need restoration. Because you've not only angels, but you have demons as well. Chapter 6, Paul is going to talk more about that. And on earth, you've probably noticed that things deteriorate. And that is an effect of the fall, of sin. We all experience the reality of how all things have been affected by the curse of sin. We see it, we experience it daily. There were certain changes in my body that I noticed when I turned 40. And now that I'm turning 50, there are more changes that I am continuing to notice. Things are not moving in the right direction. I'm definitely on the downward slope. The upward slope, they say, it only goes into the mid to late 20s. And then the degradation kicks in. Kind of depressing, isn't it? Mid to late 20s, and then it's... Your body starts deteriorating. It's a little depressing. Now, of course, there are some things. There are some of the effects that can be held at bay for a while. For instance, you may have never really gotten serious about working out. And then in your 30s, you hire Adam McLean to be your personal trainer. And over the course of the following months, you start gaining muscle and your metabolism increases. You're healthier and you're stronger than you have ever been in your life. You can help people with that. Right, Adam? These are things that we could do. But that won't last forever. It'll last for a while, but eventually it'll continue to kick in. Because this world and everything in it has been affected by sin, and so everything in it will eventually degrade. But God... God sent Jesus to change all of that. We can see some of the changes happening now, and the rest will take place when He comes back. All things in heaven and all things on earth. There is a plan, and it's coming to a culmination through Jesus Christ. Because in Genesis chapter 3, a chapter that we read through in our Bible reading last week in our, in our reading plan, told us that our relationship with God fell apart and everything else followed. But it's not going to last. It does not last. Paul talks more about this in Romans chapter 8, where he speaks of 
of our current problems and our hope for something better to come. And not only us, he says, but, but all creation. This is what he says in Romans chapter 8, verse, verse 18 and following. It speaks to the reality of this. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So there's the reality that we have just been talking about that Paul encapsulates here in the passage. There is a groaning that takes place. We know, we know that it should be better. We know there's something better for us. We know there's a completion that is to come in our bodies and in this earth and in all creation. It groans together along with us, knowing that it's not just a, a hopeless growing, groaning, but it's a hope-filled groaning because it will be completed. It will happen. Jesus came once and he will come again. And at that time, it says he will unite in this verse in in, in uh, Ephesians 1, he will unite or he will sum up all things. That's what this word is referring to. There's going to be a summing up that happens of all things. And that means that what Philippians chapter 2 says is true, that there will come a time when at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. That is a reality that is coming. Whether you have believed it in your lifetime or not, it says every tongue will confess, every knee will bow. You will confess it on that day. All people will confess it on that day. And it will be far better for you if you confess it now and not wait until then. And so in the meantime, through the enabling power of the Holy Spirit, we who make this confession, we wait with patience, as Paul said in Romans chapter 8. We wait with patience for this to take place. That's also what he says next in our long sentence, but that's for next week we're going to finish that sentence off. Because there will come a day when all our needs and all of our hopes are going to be met in Him. He will unite all things together, and He has given us His Holy Spirit that confirms this truth in our hearts and seals us as his people until that day. That sounds like actually like a whole sermon right there. The God who unites all things together for his purpose. The Holy Spirit confirms this truth in our hearts and the Holy Spirit seals us until his return. There's a three-point sermon. If I need another one, I'm going to make note of that. It's a beautiful truth right there. Because remember, in all of these things, they are possible because when we become a follower of His, all of our deepest needs and all of our longings were met in Him. They are met in 
Christ. That's your new identity. Your identity is in Jesus Christ. He is sitting at the right hand of God literally, and because we are in Jesus Christ, we are seated at the right hand of God representatively. It is a beautiful picture that this passage gives us. Well, what do we do about it? So what? Well, so now we know what our final destiny is and that God has a purpose and a plan and it cannot be defeated. Well, now we strive and we work and we walk in Christ-likeness. We are to strive and to work together for that. As I say, Paul uses the word walk a lot in the rest of this book. We walk together in this. We strive and we work for Christ-likeness. The holy and the blameless thing that we were chosen for, we strive with every fiber of our being to become that. We can do it with confidence now that we know that His plan will never fail. Because we know He has a plan, we can do it with confidence. It gives us true freedom. That means that we can never mess up so badly that God's plan will be defeated. Isn't that good news? You can never mess up so badly that you're going to thwart God's plan. That allows us to be able to work with confidence and to work towards sanctification with confidence. That's really hopeful. And it's hopeful in a number of ways. That's hopeful when it comes to things like parenting, you know, to be able to know that. That's hopeful when it comes to things like evangelizing. You know, the outcome and the success of these things is not just the result of our supreme independent ability. The outcomes of these things do not depend solely upon us because these two things are true. You can never mess things up so badly that God will be thrown off His plan, but you are able to make life miserable for yourself and those who are around you. Both of those things are true. God has a plan and He is sovereign. Therefore, we are motivated to walk well and to make our calling and our election sure. That's what Paul says in Philippians 2.12, when he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. We are called to continue to strive and to work towards Christ's likeness, towards that holy and blamelessness that we are told about. We work it out with fear and with trembling, for it is God who is at work in us, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So let's go and let's work hard and let's study hard and let's plan well, because we are a hopeful people who know that one day Jesus will come and He will unite all things to Himself, things in heaven and things on earth. For one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for this passage that gives us hope and confidence. And it's a, it's a reality that we can barely comprehend, Father. But we know that it is true that You have called us, and because you have called us, it gives us the ability to be able to work well, for it is you who is at work in us and through us. And so we thank you that we can have this confidence. And I pray that as a community together, that we would work well together, that we would strive together. And Lord, individually, as we go into our lives as well, that we would, that we would work and we would strive towards this, this goal of 
Christ's likeness in our lives, Father. More of you and less of us day by day. We thank you that you have made all of these things possible in Jesus Christ. And so we wait patiently for that day to come. And as we wait, we don't sit back passively, but we work actively as we are patiently in waiting of your return. When every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It is for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.